for the rest of us, if we haven't uh, gotten the chance to meet, uh, my name's Aaron. I think next week I'll go back to the black t-shirt and go that route again. Uh, but if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. And for those of you who've been around for some time, you know we've been going through primarily the Old Testament. Back at the very beginning of 2021 last year, we started in Genesis, and we've been kind of slowly plodding our way along through the Old Testament. And today we find ourselves in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. And as you're turning there, I want to just start off by asking kind of a very uh, simple question. Kind of think back maybe to maybe your childhood or early kind of years. Do you ever remember or have a memory of a time where you so wanted to be like someone or something? You just really wanted to maybe have something or do something in order so that you could be a part or belong or be like someone or something. I can think of a few in my childhood. I remember kind of middle elementary school years growing up. I so wanted to be like my friends who had a Game Boy and that got to play Pokemon. Remember that back in the 90s? And so I just begged and begged my parents, can I please have a Game Boy? Can I please have, you know, Pokemon Red? Don't make, you know, fun of me or anything. But, like, that was my thing because I wanted to be like my friends. And then later on, kind of growing up, I, you know, got really into baseball. I grew up, you know, north of Seattle and so a huge Mariner fan growing up. But I wanted to be like Ken Griffey Jr., Right, you know, the backwards hat, the, the smooth swing, and, you know, later Ichiro came onto the team, and then, you know, I'm playing baseball, you know, mimicking his stance with, the, like, the little, like, he had the bat with the wand, and he pulls the sleeve kind of thing. And so it's part of, I think, for many of us, our childhoods, and just being human, this desire to be like someone we respect or be like a group of friends so that we might either fit in or whatever the case might be. And... For a lot of us, and for especially those kind of early childhood experiences or early kind of young year experiences, it's not necessarily all bad, right? It can be fun, it can be playful, it's a way to connect and grow and to dream and so on and so forth. But there is something to this idea of wanting to be like blank that can lead to perhaps areas where God gets maybe pushed to the side where God sort of gets replaced with this overwhelming desire to be like someone or something. And what happens, we'll find in our story, is that Israel wants to be like the other nations. I'm going to fast forward just a little bit into our chapter. Around verse 5, we read this line where Israel comes up to Samuel, who is at, basically at this time the de facto leader of Israel, and comes to Samuel and says, we want a king, verse 5, appoint us a king, so that we can, quote, be like the other nations. So that we can be like the other nations. And what we find in our text this morning is that there becomes this point in the life and history of Israel where their desire to want to conform or to be like starts them on this path that will eventually lead to their, essentially their destruction. Now, I don't want to go too far ahead of that. That's kind of maybe skipping a little too far ahead for now. Let's kind of take a step back. Let's come back to verse 1. We'll get to verse 5 and 6 in a moment. But that's sort of the, the direction we're headed this morning. Talking about our human desire to want to be like someone or something and how that affects negatively oftentimes, replacing God in the process. So that's where we're going. But let's kind of back up, start in verse 1, and we'll kind of get, give some context to why Israel is saying what they're saying here in verse 5. So, 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse 1. 
When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son name was Joel, and his second was Abihah. They were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his ways, and they turned toward dishonest prophet, took bribes, and perverted justice. Now, let's pause right here. If you've been with us for, you know, any length of time, we've been, again, going through the Old Testament. And kind of ask yourself this question. Have we seen something like this before? A ruler of Israel with two sons that are kind of doing their own thing, going kind of wicked ways. We have. Multiple times so far in the story of Israel. We can actually go all the way back to Aaron, Moses' brother. His two sons were actually pretty wicked and had their own issues to deal with. Back in the book of Leviticus. Gideon, or later on in the book of Judges, Gideon has sort of the same sort of issues. And then right in the beginning of this book, in 1 Samuel, Eli and his two wicked sons. So we're beginning to see, and this is kind of how the Old Testament works, these patterns, these repeated themes come up again and again. And they're meant for us to kind of go back and compare and contrast and think about how these previous stories inform this story and how this story kind of informs these previous stories. But nonetheless, the point for now is simply we're in this new but yet similar moment where Israel's leadership from the current generation to the next generation, is compromised. Where you start off with a leader who's decent, who's respectable, who fears Yahweh, who fears the God of Israel, but that transition to his sons is not happening. There's something going on here. There's something off. Now, Israel picks up on this. This leads to sort of their request, the elders of Israel, verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. Now, just to give a little bit of context here. This is obviously chapter 8. The the chapter right before this, 1 Samuel 7, ends with essentially Israel at this extreme high point at this point in their story. Samuel helps deliver and defeat the Philistines. There's huge momentum happening in the nation of Israel or the the people of Israel at this time. Things are going extremely well for Israel. Samuel is described as this one who is judging Israel, and that, that word judge is essentially just this idea of Samuel ruling Israel well, all throughout the different geographic regions that make up Israel at this time. So 1 Samuel 7 ends on this momentous high note. Things are going well. The momentum and the favor and the goodness is all going Israel's direction. Yet, there's this one little detail. Samuel's sons and their wickedness. And then the the desire of the, the elders of Israel to come to Samuel and be like, hey, wait a second. We want something different. You're at a moment, Israel, where there's prosperity and there's success. Yet... It's easy for them to stray now because everything's going well for them. Eugene Peterson, he has a great little commentary on 1 Samuel. He writes this about this section. He says this. Here is the curious thing. We are more apt to leave God's ways during times of well-being than in time of need. Prosperity seems to be the fertile breeding ground for discontent and sin. See, this is the context of what's happening. Israel, at the end of chapter 7, as they head into chapter 8, there's prosperity. Things are going well. Victory has happened. And yet it can, all too easy, if we can just think about our own lives for a moment, in seasons of 
health and success and goodness to think, I can just coast. I'm good. I don't really maybe need God as much as I thought I did. I, I kind of got it all figured out. And then you begin to kind of, oh, I'm going to come up with my own ideas. How can I maybe do this or do that on my own power or my own strength? And here in the storyline of Israel, there's this sort of idea, this desire to maybe replace God as king with a human king. That maybe we can do this on our own. That instead of, as what God had said from all along, that God was going to be king over Israel. God was going to be the ruler over Israel. That now Israel, in this moment of prosperity and contentment and success, is maybe perhaps going their own way now. And again, to think about this for us here. How often is it easy for us in these seasons, in, in a moment where things are going well, where there's momentum happening, where life seems to be going the direction I want to then kind of stand off to the side and go, okay, God, I've got this on my own now. I don't really need you as much. Maybe that happens for some of us. I even think about even our church right now. So many amazing things happening in the life of our body. Especially the past few weeks we mentioned just a moment ago. So many new people coming, relationships forming, lives being changed. And it can be really easy to think, okay, we can just coast now. We don't need to be as dependent on the Lord now. We've kind of got it all figured out. But perhaps, like even the quote from Peterson here in the text in particular, is perhaps this like subtle, gentle warning to don't just think we can do it on our own. Don't just think we can, okay, come up with our own ideas apart from the mercy and the work of the Spirit in our lives. That in fact, in moments like this where things seem to be going really well on a large scale, that it should instead deepen not only our gratefulness to God, but also our dependence on him. But as we'll see in our text, though, Israel wants to kind of go their own way. From a moment of prosperity, it's easy for the discontent and the sin to creep in. Look what happens next. The elders, they say to Samuel, verse 5, they said to him, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Just a quick little, kind of there's some Hebrew humor going on here. The, the word for elders and the word for old are essentially the same word in the original language here. And so it's the people that are old, they're coming to Samuel and they're like, hey, you're old. Right? We want you out. And there's a little bit of irony that's happening here. And if you're Samuel at this point, you're like, huh? You're telling me I'm like, there's a little bit of like, Samuel, I wonder what he's thinking at this point. But look what he says. Or look what they say to Samuel. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us like the other nations have. Again, you see that motive there. Wanting to be like the other nations. Wanting to conform not satisfied with what God has given them, who God has made them, who God has designed them, but wanting to be like someone or something else. Give us a king to judge us like the other nations have. Again, what's interesting is that up until this point, you look at the last three or four verses of chapter 7. That same word for judge is used to describe Samuel and his ministry. Samuel is the one who is judging and ruling Israel well at the end of chapter 7. So there's almost like this subtle dig that's happening from the elders to Samuel. Like, we need a new person around here. You're not cut out for this anymore. And I know it's not necessarily the main part of this story, but I can't help but wonder how Samuel is perceiving and receiving this. 
Maybe just think about, again, your own life. A moment where someone comes up to you perhaps and says, you know, we might need to make a change here. Or we're not really sure about, you know, your performance or what you're doing. And there's kind of a, it's not easy to not take that personally in a moment like that. And I can't help but wonder if Samuel is having to wrestle with some of that. That the very thing that he's commended for at the end of chapter 7 is the very thing that the elders now are wanting him to be replaced with. Verse 6, when they said to him, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. Literally, it's that Samuel considered their demand evil or raw. Samuel perceives, he sees that what the, the people of Israel are doing at this moment is something of evil. That it's not going to go well for them if they continue down this path. But look how Samuel responds. And so he prayed to the Lord. He prayed to the Lord. Again, it's a simple clause, a simple kind of half sentence, if you will. But again, you receive sort of this news that people are, are more or less unhappy with you. Things aren't now, they went from a place of prosperity and success and goodness, and now you're being questioned in the role that you now have. Or at least that's maybe how you might perceive that. How does Samuel respond? How does Samuel process? He brings that to the Lord. He prays. Now, let's pause here for a moment. Because again, if you've, again, been with us, we've been going through the Old Testament. And one of the things that we've talked about as we've journeyed through the Old Testament is Israel's need for a king. Think back with me a little bit. A few months ago, we were going through the book of Judges. And as we were going through the book of Judges, there was this repeated line that kept coming up. And it would more or less, kind of summarizing the last verse, but it happens multiple times, the last verse in the book of Judges says something to this effect. That everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, and there was no king in Israel. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, and there was no king in Israel. Now, historically, Samuel, the book of Samuel, kind of follows and kind of hinges off of this same sort of historical time period as the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is essentially, I kind of think of the book of Judges like the check engine light on your car, right? The check engine light pops up, and that kind of signals something's wrong, right? And, you know, most of us, if you're like me, just kind of ignore it and hope it goes away at some point, right? <laughs> you're like, oh, problem solved, right? You laugh because that's what you do too, Right? But the book of Judges, though, is that check engine light ain't going away, right? And the check engine light is this. People are doing whatever they want, and there's no king. The problem being, the solution to that problem is that we need a king around here. We need a king who will rule with justice and mercy, who will rule with righteousness and shalom, who will bring God's ways to bear on this land and on this people. That's what we need around here. So, with that in mind, how are we to think about this request for a king on the part of Israel in chapter 8? Like, why is Samuel more or less kind of bent out of shape? Like, he sees and perceives that this request is evil or raw. Why is Samuel not on board with this? Hasn't Samuel kind of read his own family history of the book of Judges? Like, what we need around here is a king. We need a king. In fact, if you go back even further into the Old Testament, Genesis 49, as Jacob, the patriarch, he's about to pass away and he gives blessings to his kids. He prophesied that there would be a ruler or a king from Judah, the line of Judah, in Genesis 49. And then even later, the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to about 20. 
there's this short little paragraph tucked away at the end of the Torah, Deuteronomy, that describes the requirements and the qualifications for Israel's kings. So all the way back during Moses' time, if you will, there was already intention and provision for Israel to have a king. Now what's interesting, though, is that in Deuteronomy 17, what you are told is that Israel's kings are not like to be, are not to be like the other nation's kings. They're not to, three things are not supposed to do. Have multiple wives, have massive wealth, and accumulate massive military strength. Right? Those three main things they're not supposed to do, because that's what the nations or the kings of the other nations do. The one primary thing that the king of Israel is supposed to do, according to Deuteronomy 17, is copy and read the Torah. He used to be a Bible nerd. Just read the Bible all day long and write the Bible all day. That's what the king is supposed to do. Now, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's important to our story today. Is that what ends up happening is the very three things that Israel's kings are not supposed to do are the things that they constantly do as we continue on with Samuel and into kings. And in particular, you go fast forward and read the Solomon story. It is like copy and paste. That whoever wrote Deuteronomy or whoever wrote the Solomon story is like describing Solomon with the exact same language of what not to do in Deuteronomy 17. That Solomon essentially does exactly what Deuteronomy 17 is not supposed to do as a king. Now, all of that, how are we to then think about 1 Samuel 8 and this request on the part of Israel, we want a king. I think on one level, there again, there's provision within the scriptures themselves that Israel was going to have a king. The difference, though, the point of contention, the point of where Israel goes off in making this request is that last little part that I mentioned at the very beginning. We want a king. That's okay. The Torah made provision for that. We want a king like the other nations. That's where they go wrong. We want to conform to the culture around us. We're not satisfied with being distinct, holy, separate as God's people. We want to be like blank. And I can't help but wonder, you know, again, I mentioned it at the beginning. There's those moments in our early childhood where it's innocent and it's fun. We want to be like our hero, be like whatever. But if we're honest, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes that desire to want to be like blank brings us to a place where essentially God gets replaced. And it begins to take over in an unhealthy way. Because look at how the text responds, or look how God responds to this in the text. Verse 7, the Lord told him, so this is now God speaking to Samuel. The Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they, they say to you. Look at this. This is important. They have not rejected you. They have not rejected you, Samuel. Because, again, I can't help but wonder, if Samuel's hearing this, it'd be very easy for Samuel to perceive, they are rejecting me. They're rejecting me as leader. Because, again, the end of chapter 7, Samuel is the one who is judging Israel well. But here, God is making it clear. They have not rejected you. They have rejected or replaced me as their king. This desire to conform, this desire to be like blank, in this case, be like the nations, is now displacing and replacing God 
as the king and as the center of Israel's life. They are doing, verse 8, the same thing to you that they have done to me. Since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. Again, just to be abundantly clear, what's happening here is they're not rejecting Samuel, God says. They're rejecting God himself. That this desire, which in some ways is actually good and decent, because that, again, Deuteronomy 17 makes provision for Israel to have a king. Genesis 49 foretells of a day when there would be a king from the tribe of Judah. It's a good thing. But that good thing becomes something that is corrupt and dangerous when it comes from a place of desiring to be like the broader culture in this sense, of conformity, of not truly wanting God to be at the center, to be the distinct, holy, set-apart people that God has called them to be. But that's why then, and you kind of alluded to it in the text there, there's going to be some warnings that will take place. Now, I'm going to read about seven or eight verses, a kind of a decent chunk here. Now, don't worry about following all the details of what I'm about to read, but just try to pay attention for one key repeated word that's going to happen over and over. All right, I'll have it on the screen, but as you hear and listen, there's one key repeated word in this warning that is going to really be important, starting in verse 11. He said, this is Samuel now warning the people, or God warning the people, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to his horsemen and to run after his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. There is one repeated word, take, take, right? Almost a half dozen times within just a short paragraph, the word take gets repeated. It's this theme here in this section. And think about the irony of this. Israel is making a request. Israel is asking for God to give them something. And this something, the king, ends up being, will end up being someone who will take from them. Think about that. How many of us have been in a moment where we like, we, I just so want this. If I just have this, th then this will happen. And what often ends up happening when we have that sort of overcommitment or overdesire is that that thing ends up taking from us. The thing that we so want to have, the, the, the person, the idea, the, the experience, whatever the case might be, the thing that we are asking for, making a request for, in some ways, if we're not careful, can end up being the thing that begins to take from us. Takes from our time, taking from our family, 
taking from our discipleship and our community life with other believers, taking from our commitment to Jesus himself. Again, this is all, remember the motive for the, for the people of Israel, the desire to be like. And when that desire to be like grows and festers and multiplies, the text is warning us of this danger. The thing that you think will provide the comfort and the assurance and the solution, perhaps, more often than we like to admit, might end up taking from us and might not actually give what we actually are hoping that thing or person idea to actually give. Again, it's an ancient story, but when you sit with that, what a powerful warning that is. That doesn't this represent oftentimes the human condition? The desire to want to conform, which replaces God and leads to then us settling for things that actually don't add fruitfulness and vitality to our lives, but end up taking from our lives. And this is exactly where Israel finds themselves here in chapter 8. But verse 19, the tragedy of this story continues. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We must have a king over us. Look at verse 20, kind of a repeat of back to verse 5 and 6. Then we will be like the other nations. Then we will be like the other nations. Now, for us today, that's kind of the basic story for us. 1 Samuel 8. And as we think about this story and kind of how this intersects with sort of our everyday life. Here, centuries later, in a time where we're not necessarily living in a monarchy and our political system's way different and so on and so forth. All sorts of details are different. Yet, I believe this text speaks directly into our lives today. And a couple things that kind of came to mind as I was praying and processing and just really seeking, okay, what might the Spirit of God have to say to us through this text? And for me, I just want to boil this really simply down to just this simple phrase. Our desire. Our desire. Because think about it. Israel has this desire to want to be like the other nations. This desire to want to replace God with a human king. And that is going to end up, based on the warnings of this text, and you just keep reading the Old Testament, that is going to lead Israel astray. And so as we think about this, how might we kind of think about our own desire? Our own desire to want to be like X or to become X in a way that potentially might end up replacing God in the process. Now I want to break this down into two kind of parts off this, our desire. The first one, our desire as it relates to politics. Fun topic, right? <laughs> but think about this for a moment. What's happening in this story? Again, Israel has this desire to want to replace God, have a new king. But what fundamentally is that actually all about? It's about Israel wanting and seeking their answers, their solutions in a human political leader over and against God himself. Israel, God's people, seeking leadership, direction, answers, hope, deliverance in a human political leader over and above God himself. I know that never happens today. Right? And think about this. Eugene Peterson, he puts it well. He says this about this passage. When people transfer their expectations for righteousness and salvation from God to government, they are sure to be disappointed. 
And one of the things that I think this text is showing us is the, the nature of the human condition, the desire that sometimes we have to place our hope, our expectation, our, our desire for deliverance, our desire for our solutions and our problems to be fixed in a human political leader rather than God himself. And again, this is not to say that politicians are bad or politics are bad. No, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm talking about our hope, where we place our, our desire, our comfort, our source of expectation of deliverance. Is that in a human political leader or party or ideology or system, or is that in God himself? And one of the ways that I think we have to be careful of this is that oftentimes in a culture that's becoming more and more secular, is we have to remember that humans are actually religious beings regardless that humans find a way to still be religious. Leslie Newbegin, a missionary back in the kind of the mid to, to late kind of 1900s, so like the 70s and 80s in, in India primarily, he predicted and kind of was in a prophetic sort of way talked about that as culture became more and more secular, his sort of prediction that was that secular culture would still be just as religious, if not more, but would transfer that religious kind of zeal to politics. And he talked about this idea of the, the political religions. The idea being that as human beings, we have this innate desire to want to follow someone. We have this desire to want to have deliverance and shalom and goodness happen. And so now it, what, what it becomes is God is sort of moved off to the side. It, be, it can become very easy to place that same zeal and hope in human political systems, and not in God himself. I heard Philip Yancey this week, he said something, I heard this this week, he said this, a culture that has no room for the supernatural will take what is natural and elevate it to supernatural status. And is that, is not the temptation oftentimes for us to elevate certain figures, in, in the context here, talking about political figures, to this level of, Worship of placing our hope, placing our expectation for there to be deliverance in that. And I guess one way, I'll end with this on this point at least, to maybe as, as like a diagnostic to see, am I kind of falling into that trap or temptation? Perhaps one sort of diagnostic way of thinking about this is that do you, if we're honest, sometimes think that the people who you disagree with politically, like they're like the evil and they're the problem in our world, and that the ones that agree with me politically, they're the ones that got it right. And now we've kind of fed into the division and the hostility of our kind of climate right now. And the challenge would be to recognize, do you believe that you actually have something more important in common with a brother and sister in Christ that has the opposite political views than you than someone who would vote the exact same way as you but does not know Jesus. And if you feel that you potentially have more in common with someone who votes the same as you but does not know Jesus, perhaps that's a red flag that maybe more hope is being placed in a human political movement than the person of Jesus himself as king. And as the church, may we be a body where we have our differences 
where we recognize that we all don't have to think the same about the different cultural issues of the day as it relates to politics. But what keeps us together, what keeps us glued, is Jesus as king, Lord of all. Not red or blue, but Jesus as the center. And that we come with our differences, we come recognizing that I know a lot of you in this room, we might not see eye to eye on some of these things, and that's okay. But because Jesus is king, and that he loves us, and he is for us, that we worship together the risen king, the true king overall. And so just as we kind of think about this, as we think about 1 Samuel 8, our desire and that temptation to, that can be subtle at times and sometimes pretty overt, to replace God with human political ambitions or ideas over and against King Jesus. I think the text has something to say to that. The second thing, though, kind of more broadly, is our desire as it relates to conformity or to be like. Right? Think about it. The, the text was saying, we want a king like the other nations. We want a king like the culture at large. And just like how I mentioned at the beginning, you know, as a kid, we kind of have these desires to be like our friends or to be like our favorite sports heroes. And a lot of that is innocent and that is good and that's fun for the most part. But sometimes as we grow and develop and as we get older, we have to pay attention to that desire to want to be like blank. To be like X. To conform to maybe a different friend group or what people are doing at school or the office or the, the other social settings that we might be in. Again, that might not all be 100% evil or bad, but that subtle desire to want to conform at the expense of replacing God, there has to be a red flag there. There has to be a, 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 at least a gentle warning in that direction that you go down that path, it does not lead to the health and the vitality that God desires for us. You know, I think about Paul's words in Romans 12. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve or discern what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is, I think, for many of us, myself included, there is this temptation, there is this desire oftentimes to want to conform to the patterns that don't actually lead to the health and the vitality that Jesus and the scriptures offer. That oftentimes there's this subtle tendency, oh, I just want to, if I could just be like that or have that or achieve this, that would bring the fulfillment that I'm longing for. That if I could just be like so-and-so or have this sort of lifestyle or have this sort of experience, then perhaps then, maybe, if, my life might turn around. But 1 Samuel 8, Romans 12, the words of Paul, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but rather be transformed. Be made new. Receive the healing and the life and the forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus. Let me just kind of take this maybe just a layer deeper for a moment. Recently, my wife and I, Cheyenne, we watched the, both the documentary and the movie about uh, Mr. Fred Rogers. How many of you have seen that before? Phenomenal, right? 
And Fred Rogers, again, for me growing up, I just realized after I'm watching this documentary and this movie, I just didn't appreciate just the beauty and just the, the character of this man, Mr. Rogers. And one of the things that really stood out to me as we were watching this is that the line that he would always say to, to children or to really anyone is that he would say something to the effect of so many times, I like you just the way you are. Or I love you just the way you are. And he was helping to build into so many young people, young children, this, sen- this sense of rootedness and identity in who they are. You know, if you know the story of Fred Rogers, he comes from a Christian background. He was, he was seminary trained. He, you know, Jesus was shaping the way he was talking and thinking through his whole career. And so he got the idea that identity mattered. I like you, I love you just the way you are. And I can't help but wonder, as it relates to this idea of conformity, I know, I'm, if I'm being honest, this is kind of at, at play for me, is that oftentimes that desire to be like X or to become X is a forgetfulness in the identity that have already been given in Jesus. That in those moments where it's like, I want to be like X and that will bring fulfillment is a forgetting of the biblical truth that God loves us and is for us as we are. To the point, yes, where he seeks our transformation, he seeks our growth, he does not leave us as we are, for sure. That he helps us to grow and mature, yes, 100%. But that does not change the way God loves us and sees us and is for us. That nothing, Romans 8, can separate us from his love. And oftentimes, in those moments where there's that subtle and yet sometimes overt temptation to want to conform, I wonder for you, is that perhaps a moment where you can remember the identity that is given to you, not earned, something to be received, the love of the Father, the creator of the universe for you? that you don't have to conform or to become or do something to change your status or worth before your creator. That conformity, as we're talking about it here, as the Bible is talking about it here, is the lie to the truth that our identity has been given freely to us by our creator in his love. I know that's a real thing for me. You know, I joke about, you know, wanting Pokemon and hanging out with friends as a kid and then becoming like a certain baseball player and all that. But that struggle with wanting to be like someone, even in a vocation, especially, to be honest, in a vocation like mine, right? I want to be like that pastor. I want to be like that speaker. In that moment, for me, I'm forgetting that that's not the answer to my worth, to my value, to who God has made me to be. And just to pay attention to that, to slow down and to recognize the gift of God's love is not something we earn, it's something we receive. You know, yesterday, it reminds me of that. It's just like a matter of time before Encanto becomes like a sermon illustration, but like, (laughs) here it is. (laughs) So like yesterday we had like a bunch of kids over at our house, like more kids than adults, and the, the ratio was way off. 
And so, like, there's, like, a few young adults came to help us. We're doing, like, this little Valentine's thing. And, you know, we each kind of had, like, our own baseball team to manage with kids running around. And so it was chaos, but good chaos. But one of the things that kids kept wanting to do was they just kept playing the Encanto music over and over. So it was just constant, like, Encanto music just playing at our house, like, kind of all afternoon. But you kind of think about it. If you've seen that movie, and it sounds like many of you have, that struggle with identity, that struggle with belonging, is not something that's earned. I think that movie really powerfully portrays that for a lot of our young people. And I think it's a message that we all need to hear as well, even as adults. That our worth, our belonging, is not something that we have to conform to to earn, but is something that is freely given to us by God. And so as the, I want to invite the worship team to come up. And as we kind of transition a little bit here, I want us to kind of think about this text and what the scriptures are saying to us. You know, a few weeks ago, we had our, our young adults group over at our house. And like I mentioned, kind of during the announcements, we've been going through Mark. And we were at that story where Jesus, where he, before he does anything as far as his ministry goes, before he heals a single person, before he preaches a single sermon, before he does anything as far as work, so to speak. There's that scene that all four Gospels remind us of, where Jesus is in the Jordan River, he's being baptized, and as he comes up out of the water, the voice from heaven declares, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And as we were discussing that a couple weeks ago, one of the guys in the group, right as we were about to end, makes that point. And it was like this gem of a moment. where We all were like, yes, this is what this is about. That for Jesus himself, his worth was not based on what he did or didn't do. And for us, the same is true for us today. That it's not based on what we do or don't do, that we are God's beloved and that he is well pleased with us. And so for us this morning, as we kind of orient ourselves to the person of Jesus, I hope that we are reminded that these different ways where we might want to shift or conform that subtly replace Jesus as king are actually a lie. That they don't leave to the health and the vitality and the flourishing that God has for us. And so as we stand and as we sing together, we're going to sing this song that talks about God being the king of our lives, the king of our hearts. And I pray that for that, all of us, that this truth would sink in. So God, we ask in this moment right now that God, you would help us to remember and to know deep within us that you are a good king, that you are for us, that we are yours. God, I pray against any of those lies and those temptations that want to subtly replace you with our desires that don't align with your vision of what it means to live in your kingdom. God, set us free from those patterns that don't lead to wholeness and shalom and peace. God, I pray for anyone here that might have just a struggle with what it means to trust you, God, that you would meet them in that, 
God, I pray that you would help us to know the goodness of you as king. So Jesus, we want to say that we love you only because you first loved us. And we pray and we ask all these things in your powerful name.